Paul the Apostle was given a call. As we remember the story, he tried to go in one direction, but the Holy Spirit put a stop sign up. A red light, he couldn't go, but he did open doors for him to go into Macedonia. Went into Macedonia, shared the gospel throughout that region. He had a lot of fruit, though he had persecution. In fact, Paul wrote a letter and he said, pray because an effective door has been opened, but there are many adversaries, which you can bank on anytime you decide to do God's will or perform God's work. That God will open up opportunities, but there will be adversaries. And Paul went back a second time, was sharing with the people, and he ends up in Athens, Greece. You know, I look at the story of Paul the Apostle and I see what opportunities this guy had. But the reason he had opportunities is because he left himself open for them. And we might not have the same opportunities of world travel like Paul the Apostle did. And believe me, I don't think many of us would want to have the same opportunities Paul had. How many of us would like to walk two, three, four hundred miles, be beaten with rods, thrown into the sea, rejected by the Jewish people, go a night and uh, a day in the ocean, on and on and on. The kind of persecution he had is kind of tough. Yet there were opportunities. And each of us have opportunities in our own little worlds, our own realms. God orchestrates opportunities for us to share. And we need to look for them. They come in strange ways sometimes. Somebody might ask you a question. They might read some tabloid or some newspaper in the supermarket and say, what's this world coming to? You might think, I'm glad you asked that. You might be able to share with them. It could be a door. I couldn't tell you exactly how long ago it was, but... Well, actually, for, for me, it was a few weeks. A few weeks ago, I was out in California, and Chuck Smith said that he got an opportunity to go to China. That the, so, that the uh, Chinese government... One of the, the minister of cultural affairs asked him to come over to China. The government invited him, gave him the royal treatment invitation, asked him to come over and bring anyone else he wanted, a small team. So he asked me if I go along. And so yesterday I was with him and I said, Chuck, how did this invitation come about for us to go to China? He said, good question. Let me tell you about it. We have a, fellow, a gal in our church from Asia who was displaced in Korea she was separated from her whole family, taken to the United States, if I can remember the story correctly. She tried to make contact with her parents all of her life to no avail. They had died. And she wanted to make contact with her one living brother that she knew was in China, but she didn't know where. Now, in China, there's over a billion people. One out of every four people on planet Earth is Chinese. So it's a big country. She wanted to get in contact with them. She had become a born-again Christian. In prayer, while she was just praying and waiting on God, a number came through her mind, and she wrote it down. She called the number. It was a number in China. And the voice on the other end was her brother that she hadn't spoke to since they were children. She was shaking as she was talking on the phone. And, you know, she said, this is your sister. And, of course, they exchanged stories of their childhood and their parents to confirm that she was really speaking to her brother. And uh, her brother naturally asked, how did you get this phone number? 
Now, his frame of reference, so you can understand how puzzled he would be, is that he was he is one of the generals for the Communist Party in Manchuria, who oversees most of Manchuria. And when she told him the story, and they eventually were able to get together, meet with each other, she came over to China, she led him to Christ. Now, he's still a general. Serving in that capacity in China as a believer. And the story went through some of the uh, the Chinese lines and... uh, has blown the minds of several people there so that Chuck gets this invitation because this gal goes to his church and now Chuck and I get to go over to China with a couple others and I said, well, do we get to speak on anything? What's the theme? And he said, the theme is evangelical Christianity in America. What a wide open door. You can say anything. Speak on evangelical Christianity in America. What a great topic. And so we were invited by the government. I mean, just red carpet treatment to go over there to uh, speak to the churches, uh, the seminaries. Now, these are state-run, three-self-church, state-run churches. Uh, government officials will attend. And just an incredible opportunity uh, to go over there. So we're going to go over there beginning September 4th. I throw that out kind of as I was thinking of Paul the Apostle. That came into my mind. But you can pray for us as we go over there in September. We get to go over there with uh, Ricky Ryan, Mike McIntosh, Chuck and myself. And uh, so you pray for us as we go over there. Well, Paul had an unusual opportunity. He gets to go to Athens, Greece. No doubt a place that he had wanted to go all of his life. Now keep in mind, Paul was a scholar. Paul the Apostle was a college graduate, a university graduate. He knew Greek culture. He knew Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. He was very multicultural, multilingual. He could handle himself in a synagogue, easily pull out Old Testament scriptures and feel at home, speaking theology, bringing out the ancient Jewish writings and their relevance to today. He felt equally at home on the Areopagus of Athens quoting the philosophers of Greece, the Cretan philosophers, the Cilician philosophers. He felt equally at home in the marketplace, speaking to the common person. Now, Paul said, to the Jew I became a Jew, that I might win the Jew. To those that are without the law, I became as one without the law, that I might win those who were without the law. I spoke their language. That by all means, I might save some. Well, Paul is in Athens speaking to the philosophers in this chapter. And as he gets into uh, Athens, we've already seen some of the things that he noticed. And we're going to recap on those. But the reason I wanted to touch before moving on to the, into this next chapter is because there is a beautiful outline here for us that I don't want us to miss. That's why I want to reinforce what we've heard. And the outline is, how can we stop corruption in this world? Now, you don't have to tell very many people who watch the news or read any kind of periodical that this world is in tough shape. And it gets worse every day. And the parameters that we set, the lines of morality are becoming so hazy and they're moved to the extremes. And if people are allowed one freedom, they want to move the line and expand that freedom. 
freedom to do, say, and be anything on public television in the public arena. The Scripture says that evil days will wax worse and worse. Yet, in the midst of the evil days, Jesus told His disciples, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, if anything should cause a Christian to lift up his head and realize what an intense, holy, privileged calling we have, it's that you are salt and light. And by the way, it's an emphatic plural in the Greek language. You, all of you, the disciples, and you alone are the salt of the earth. In other words, the world isn't going to get direction from anybody else. They're not going to find it in this religion or that religion or this philosophy or that book. You and you alone have the answer. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So don't hide your light. Don't hide that candle under a bushel. Put it up so that men might see it. When Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, he implied by that statement a couple of important things that we should just talk about before we jump right in. Number one, it implies something about this world. For Jesus to say, you and you alone are the light of the world, implies that the world is dark. By the fact that you and you only are light, you are therefore necessary, it would imply that it's against a background of darkness. When he said, you are the salt of the earth, we know that salt was a preservative for meat. He implies that the world is corrupt, decaying, in sad shape. And you can see it all around you. In fact, it's so bad. And people have turned away from God, looking for answers, groping for them in so many places, not finding anything. And as the corruption becomes more intense, there's such a spiritual void now that people are trying anything. It's almost humorous to see the religious experiences that people today are turning to in the New Age. I mean, even educated people and the philosophies, the religious philosophies perpetrated by the New Age and the, the spiritualistic movements are just bozo. They don't make any sense at all. Totally unsubstantiated experiences, but they're grabbing a hold on them because there's such an emptiness. They want anything that will anchor them, that will give them meaning to life. Because it's so dark and the world is full of such decay. And yet when Jesus made that statement, He also implied something about you and I. The world is dark. The world is decaying. But you are the light and you are the salt. Emphatic you and you alone. He implied that you and I are to be different from the world. If they are dark, you are not to be dark. If they are decaying and corrupt, you are not to be corrupting like they are. In other words, instead of them influencing you so that you're like them, you are to influence them so that they'll become like you. For that's the very purpose of light in the midst of darkness. It's the very purpose of salt in the midst of corruption. Is that salt and light would influence their surroundings so that their surroundings would become like that intrusion. And that's how the world sees you, by the way, as an intrusion. But you know, there's a lot of things that we can do in this corrupt world and dark world. 
We can complain about it. We can shake our fists. Or we can turn on the light. And isn't that the easiest thing to do? Go into a dark room. I can't see in there. I can't believe it. It's dark in this room. This is horrible. Well, just turn on the light. Oh, all right. It's that easy? Yeah. Huh. Wow. Modern technology is great. But see, Christians, we had to do that. Instead of complaining about the darkness, you're the light of the world. Turn it on and let the world see it. And that is the method of Paul the Apostle as he gets into Athens. And I want to lay down a few principles. For us to stop the flow of corruption in the world, we first of all have to see like Paul saw. And it takes us back to verse 16. When he entered the city, he saw that the city was given over to idols. He walked through Athens and he saw that there were thousands of these carved deities on every street. You couldn't miss them. In fact, there was an old phrase that was coined, in Athens it's easier to find a god than it is to find a man. The Greeks used to say that all the time. They bragged about their city, in fact, using that phrase. It's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. Now, idolatry had become progressive. At one time, people believed in one gigantic god with a few others, and then a father and mother god, uh, uh, gods over certain portions of the country. But idolatry became rampant during the time of Greece. They just had more gods and idols than any other culture before her. Which goes to show you, folks, that once, once you reject the one true, holy, omnipotent God, it takes an infinite number of lesser gods to fill the only true God's shoes. And you just got to keep having them and having them and having them and having them, and still there's total unfulfillment. And Paul walked and he saw that the city was given over to idolatry. He didn't see the great temples. Now, you can go to Athens today. Tourists still go there. I've been to Athens and I've been in awe at what I have seen. People today, when they travel to Athens, they stand in awe. They take pictures. They buy postcards. It's an amazing city. But Paul saw it differently. Paul saw under the surface. When he saw his world, and here's the key, when he saw his world, he looked past the veneer of what the world produces. You know, people go to Southern California, they go to Hollywood, they think it's paradise. Listen, I was born and raised there. It's really not all that people crack it up to be. In fact, when California is advertised, and again, my apologies if this tape goes over the air in California. I still love you. It's still home in a sense, but... When people advertise California, how do they advertise it? Beaches, volleyball, uh, warm weather palm trees. That's a small segment of California. Over a third of it is desert. Hotter than here. Death Valley, the lowest place in the continental United States. One of the highest mountain peaks in the mainland up in the Sierras. And it's very vast, but people package it a certain way and people think, oh, wow, glitz, glamour, Hollywood, great. And you even go to that area and you can't see it. It's so smoggy. And some people go there, oh, Magic Mountain, Disneyland, Raging Waters, you know, oh, can't wait to go there, Wax Museum. But look past the veneer of all those trappings. You just see millions of people who are hurting and empty and need the gospel like anywhere else. Paul, when he saw his world, looked past the veneer and he saw empty, hurting people. 
He saw that the city was given over to idolatry. Now, when you look around at your world today, do you see idolatry? Well, I guess you have to define it. Idolatry is best defined as simply a replacement. It's when you replace God with anything. Any master, whatever is your master drive, whatever occupies your passion is your God. To some it's success, to some it's pleasure and sensuality, to some it's power. Whatever you replace God with is becoming your master passion, your number one drive. If you're a young yuppie and you want just success, period, you drive after it, it's your God. That's idolatry. It's a replacement instead of worshiping the holy and true God. And I have never yet met a person who's followed another God and been satisfied very long. You know, it's interesting. Barbara Walters was interviewing Donald Trump. And she said, what's it like to have all of that wealth and power? And you know what he said is interesting reply. In fact, so revealing that every upcoming young professional businessman should take heed. He said, Barbara, the pursuit is exciting. But the fulfillment is disappointing. Looking after it, running after it, oh, it's great, but once you have it, eh, it's insipid, it's tasteless, it's disappointing once you have it. And Paul noticed that as he walked all over Athens, he saw the splendor, but he saw the emptiness. He looked past it, and he saw how his world really was. And the first step to making an impact or stemming the tide of evil is to see the world for what it really is. To have spiritual eyes. Paul prayed in Ephesians that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. You see, you can see the world in one of two ways, physically or spiritually. And we should really see it both ways. We should enjoy, I believe, what God has put on this planet. Enjoy life. Enjoy the pleasures of life, but not live for them. I love life. I don't walk around every day going, oh, I hope I die today. Just want to go to heaven, hope I die. Yeah, I mean, I can't wait to get to heaven. That's a given if you know Jesus Christ, but I want to make an impact for him for a while. And I love life. But you're not to live for the pleasures of this world. But then you can look at the world spiritually. Do you recall the story in the Old Testament of one of our heroes, Elisha? The Syrians heard that he was in Dothan, and so they surrounded the city. The servant of Elisha looked out, and he saw all of the Syrians encamped around Dothan, and he thought, oh, man, Elisha, look, buddy. Look, at, check it out. Horses and chariots. The Syrians are upon us. Elisha looked at him and said, you know what? There are more that are on our side than are on their side. And I'm sure a servant went, come again? There's two of us. See, he saw in the physical arena only. And then Elisha prayed, oh God, open his eyes. And he opened his eyes again and he saw chariots of fire and the angels of God encamped around the Syrian army, ready to just totally flattened them. And God allowed His servant to see into the spiritual arena. Well, would to God that in a sense we'd have spiritual eyes, that we'd not only see the physical beauty of this world 
and see even the catastrophes of this world, but in the spiritual realm, the battle between good and evil, the influence of Satan in this world, and begin to look at our world and begin to weep for our world and pray for our world and stand before God for our world. You know, one of the most thrilling things for me is when I'm able to have extended periods of quiet time and I use a little book called Operation World. If you've ever seen it, you might want to grab it. In a nutshell, on one page, it gives the country, tells all about it, its economic base, its religious base. I like to read about things like that. But then it gives you about ten things specifically to pray for after researching the government, the religious structure, the culture of the country. How many people are Christians there? What their struggles are? The persecution from what groups? And how to pray individually for those missionaries in that country. It's a, it's a thrilling experience to be able to travel to different parts of the world and still be at home and pray for them. To be able to see the world as God would see the world. So that's the first step, is to see as Paul saw with spiritual eyes. Then secondly, to feel like Paul felt. It's one thing to have information and to nod and accept it, but then to feel something about it. I'm impressed with Nehemiah. I'm impressed with him because he was a cupbearer in a foreign country away from Israel. He was wealthy. He had it made. He had his job. He had his career set out for him. But he heard that back in Israel, the city walls were broken down. It was destroyed. The people were in poor spirits. Jerusalem had been laid waste. Nehemiah could have, as probably would be most of our reactions. I mean, you hear about a country, a foreign country. You were never there. You were never born there. You're in a foreign country. You hear about it, and maybe you have some relatives who used to be there, and they say, hey, it's been a bad mess. The city's been destroyed, and nobody's rebuilding it again. We go, oh, you know, that's really a shame. Yeah, I'll pray about that. Thank you. He began to weep. He felt something. He began to weep, get on his knees and repent before God, including himself. God, forgive us. We've sinned against you. That's why the walls fell. That's why this place hasn't been restored, because of what your people have done to you. God, forgive us. And he felt so powerfully about that. He was moved to compassion. Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he saw the multitudes. Did he see them as a crowd? How did Jesus view people? And what did he feel about them? Did he say, Peter, check it out, man. Our ministry is really growing. Get Andrew and James, let's take an offering. This is great. There's a great opportunity out here. No, it says that Jesus, when he saw them, had compassion. Greek word splankna, he felt in his innermost depths. A depth of heart. Because he saw them as sheep having no shepherd. That's how Jesus saw them. He saw them and then he felt compassion for them. And so first, we need to see as he saw, and we need to feel as he felt. And it says that his spirit, notice verse 16, was provoked, which means irritated, even to the point of anger. Have you ever walked, or let's say you're a, a jogger, or let's say you've been on a, on a hiking trail somewhere, and you get a rock in your shoe, a little tiny rock, a little pebble, and you think, oh, I'll shake it, get it to one side of the shoe, and it'll go away, it'll get into the little crevice, maybe in between my toes, and... I can live with it. You know, I don't want to stop down and just take my shoe off. I'll just keep going. But it gets lodged right where the calcaneus is, right in the back of the... And you keep walking on a thing and it irritates it. And pretty soon, you're kind of angry. Oh, that stupid rock. And you want to take your shoe off and get rid of it. 
Have you ever had a splinter and you can't get it out? And you kind of grab something that's in your finger and it's just out of the skin enough to irritate it. Every time you grab something, ow! And it goes for a couple hours and a couple days and it's always there. It bugs you. Well, Paul felt that way in his spirit. He had a splinter in his soul. He was irritated in his spirit as he was in Athens and he saw differently. He felt differently. It was like a splinter. He was aroused in his spirit, as it says in the Greek language. And he was angry at what he saw. There's a wrong anger and then there's a right anger. Now, all most of us know what it is to have wrong anger. Because most of us have a temper, don't we? We have a fuse, and some of us have a long fuse. A lot of us have a short fuse. And some of us just quickly fly off the handle and get really angry. Quickly. But then there's righteous anger. And don't you know, God gets angry. Please don't picture God as this wimpy little gray-haired old man in the clouds. Just kind of thum-dee-dum-dee-dum as the world goes by. God gets angry. Well, how do you know what's right and what's wrong? Well, you've got to get angry at the right things. God never got really angry at people as much as the sin of people. Jesus was angered in Nazareth because of the hardness of their hearts. Jesus went into the temple and he saw the leaders ripping people off. And so he took tables of marble and overturned them and took whips and drove them out. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, drove these people right out of the temple. He was angry with what he saw. He was moved to anger. And so Paul was angry as he was uh, uh, in Athens seeing all of these things before his very eyes. And then finally, we need to do what he did. We need to see what he saw beneath the veneer of this world, into the spiritual realm. Feel as he felt. And if you... Let's back up a minute on that. If you don't feel provoked, if you don't feel sorrow, then you need to back off, get on your knees, come before God and say, God, please revitalize my sensitivity because it's shot. That my heart has become hardened. That I don't feel the sin around me. You know, it's dangerous living in a very pleasure-oriented society like this. We become desensitized to sin. We want constant entertainment, constant stimulation. And some of us have become so overexposed to perversion and sin that it doesn't affect us anymore. An example, film is sensitive to light. But if you take film and overexpose it to light, it it loses all of its sensitivity to light. If you expose it and then you try to take a picture with it, it won't work. It has lost its sensitivity by overexposing it. If you overexpose a person to corruption and he does nothing about it, he just sees it, sees it, sees it, he's exposed to it, but nothing changes, he's desensitized to it. He's hardened to it. Not only that, it's become worse. Sin that at least at one time was considered taboo, societally has become the norm. So much so that if you deviate and not accept what this society now accepts as normal, they will unlash their fury against you. 
It's so bad that this society, this modern world, now has come up with a new vocabulary to make sin more acceptable. Instead of, an, instead of adultery, it's an affair. How many people do you say, do you know that she's committing adultery? Or, hey, I hear you're committing adultery. I say, I hear you're having an affair. And it sounds more palatable that way. And we've redefined things. I think it's it's good to get back to the biblical term and definition, calling what sin really is sin, an offense to God. If you don't see it as that, then you, it, sinners, only sinners seek saviors. If people say, hey, I'm not a sinner, I, I have a few psychological hang-ups. Then you'll seek an analyst, not a savior. And Jesus isn't an analyst, by the way. He's not a psychologist, as some of you might think he is. He's not. He's a savior. He saves people from sins. And what Jesus wants is just to come clean. God, I am, I'm a sinner, Lord, save me. I need your help. I need your help. And he'll do it. We need to see, we need to feel, and then we need to do what he did. And what he did was turn on the light switch. And we covered a few principles last time. I want to finish them up this week. Number one, he began at their level. As we said, I'll just go over a few things. He began at their level. He made an observation. He said, as I was going into your city, I perceived that you are very religious. As I perceived the objects of your worship. I noticed that you were religious, so he began at their level. That's always a principle in sharing your faith. When you want to do something about evil, you want to share the gospel, begin where they're at. When he walked into a synagogue, did he quote Epicurean philosophers? No, he quoted Old Testament scripture because that was their frame of reference. They were Jews. But when he walked up onto the Areopagus, did he quote Old Testament scriptures? He didn't quote one scripture. He preached Jesus to them, but he began at their level, speaking their language, their kind of thinking. He said, I perceive that you are very religious. Number two, he used their culture as a starting point. He said, you know, I noticed something as I was cruising through your town that you got so many gods. In fact, you've got one god. Probably you made him so that you wouldn't offend any god in case you missed one to the unknown god. I've come to declare that unknown God to you. He began at their level. He used something as a point of their culture. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background. I've been digging into this unknown God thing, and I found something very interesting. Six centuries before this event, this is great, a disease ravaged Athens, Greece. The whole population was threatened with almost extinction. It became so bad that they were searching different prophets in the world to come and give them the solution. A man by the name of Epimenides. Now this is documented in Greek history as well as Plato and Aristotle alluding to it. They brought in this guy who was a Cretan, a poet named Epimenides. And Epimenides stood before the council of the Areopagus. He said, what I'd like you to do is this. Bring sheep tomorrow to the Areopagus at sunrise. Some black, some white. Make sure they're hungry sheep. They haven't been fed all night. And I'll tell you what to do. And they said, all right, hey, we'll do anything at this point. So they got the sheep early in the morning. 
The next morning, they were all wondering, what's, what's this guy going to do? We've cried out to every god in Athens and it hasn't worked. And he said, here's my premise. Number one, there is another god. He's unknown to you. You've cried out to every god that you know about. There is some god, though you don't know his name, who is able to help you if you will invoke his help. Secondly, although he is unknown, he must be good and he must be great and he must be gracious and powerful enough to help us with this plague. And number three, though we don't know his name, because he's great and gracious, if he's more, if he's powerful enough to heal a disease, he would be gracious enough to smile upon our ignorance. And even though we can't call on his name, if we invoke him, he will heal our land. I said, hey, we'll try anything. He said, this is what I want you to do. You let these sheep go through Athens. They haven't been fed all night, right? That's right. Okay, let them go through. Now, sheep, by nature, if they haven't been fed in the morning, they're going to go graze wherever they can find grass to graze. He said, let them go. And the ones that don't graze but lie down and just rest in the grass, you separate them by themselves and count them. And they said, okay, they let them go. But they were skeptical. And this was their thinking. Sheep aren't going to lie down until their belly is full. And then we can't say a God made them do that. That's just nature. It just happens. And no sheep is going to lie down before being fed. But they let the sheep go. And lo and behold, several of the sheep automatically, immediately lay down. And wherever they lay down on the grasslands of Athens, scattered throughout the city, as they followed them, they went through, found grass, and lay down on it. They slaughtered the lamb, marked the spot where the lamb rested, built an altar, and sacrificed this lamb upon the altar. When they constructed the altar, they had a problem. They said, what, shall we, what name shall we put on it? We've got to come up with some name, because they named all of their gods. It's only right to name a god. And Epimenides said, no. We will insult the God if we don't know his true name, so put Agnostotheo on there, to an unknown God. Now that's the background. And by the way, in one day, that very next morning at dawn, the uh, disease began to assuage through the city, and in one week the people who were sick were totally healed. This is according to Greek history. Paul the Apostle came by six centuries early and picked up where Epimedes left off. He, he basically said, this altar to the unknown God was to anticipate Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God. This unknown God, no one knew his name that healed your land. I've come to declare him to you. To make him known. This God that is the one true God over all creation. Him I have come to declare to you. And so he began where they were. He used their culture as a starting point. And then number three, he gave a clear and intelligent gospel message, which we covered last week. Number four, he spoke their language. Look at verse 28. Let's uh, go back to verse 24. God who made everything in the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life and breath and all things. And that's where we ended last week. 
He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, which was a direct quote from Epimedes, who came six centuries earlier. And then the second part of verse 28, for we also are his offspring. That is the quote from a guy by the name of Erastus, who is a Stoic philosopher. And so Paul speaks their language. He quotes their own poets. And here's my point. When we share the gospel, we see as Christ sees the world. We're moved with compassion. We want to do something about it. We begin at their level. We speak their language. Okay? We speak their language. The gospel is powerful. It's potent. But you know what the problem a lot of us have is that we try to package it in unflexible methods. That's been the curse of the church for centuries. Something works in one place, and so we package it, and we try to franchise it. Okay? This system, this is the way it works. We always got to have it this way. And so you get people in church who will say, we've never done it that way before. So? We're going to do it this way now. Well, I don't know. Why? If it's the same message, it doesn't matter, the packaging. And this has been the curse of Western missions for years. People from America go over to the mission field and they try to make Western churches out of Asians. It's funny, I've been to India and the Philippines and I see churches that look just like American churches next to a bamboo hut. It just looks funny. It's out of place. And they try to even talk and act like Americans and dress like us. It's just strange. And for a lot of people, it's a cultural conversion, not a Christian conversion. People think, well, if I act like Western people, I'm safe. Instead of bringing Christ into the culture and let it just be their own. Let Christ manifest himself in their culture. And so he spoke their language. He got down to their level. Number five, or number, yeah, number five, he brought it down to a personal decision. Verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of all this by raising him from the dead. So basically, he goes through all of his message. He begins where they're at, gets something from their own culture. He gives a clear, intelligent answer. He brings them to a personal decision. He says, therefore, he commands people to repent. In other words, it's your move, Athenians. God made his move. We live and move and have our being in here. He created us. He's marked the boundaries of our habitations. We've been ignorant in the past. And God has overlooked these times of ignorance. You had an altar to an unknown God. You didn't know His name. But now He commands people everywhere to repent. It's your move. When we share the gospel with people, it's important that we give them some kind of an invitation, a door. Even if it's, you know, we don't have to say, you know, if you're one-on-one with somebody. Now, I'd like you to bow your head and close your eyes right now. And raise your hand. No, you don't do that. There are settings for that. We can do that in a church setting, but it's different. But bring them to a point of invitation. Here, here's my phone number, my address. You want to call me? Let's talk about this. 
Or, have you ever prayed to receive Jesus? Would you like to know that kind of life? You can know it right now. Really? Right now? Yeah, let's pray together. One of the greatest thrills is to lead a person to Christ. I mean, one-on-one, personally. And some of you haven't done that, but hey, that's all right. Try it sometime. As you share with the person, as you're relational with the person, as you share your heart of the life of Christ, bring them to a point of decision. And then notice the sixth thing that Paul did. He spelled out the consequences. We read over that, but notice verse 31. He's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. This is the other side of the coin, folks. And you need to preach this. There's good news and there's bad news. The good news is this might be the closest you'll ever get to hell. The bad news is this is the closest some of you could get to heaven. You need to share that truth. You don't want to come at him with fire and brimstone. Paul didn't stand up on the Areopagus and go, excuse me, pagan heathen sinners who are ready to burn in hell. God loves you. Oh, he started with them, but he ended up giving them an opportunity to decide, but spelled out the consequences if they didn't. He saw in a spiritual realm, past the veneer of the world. He wasn't a tourist. He was a pilgrim. Then he felt, because he genuinely saw into the spiritual realm, he genuinely felt inside the depravity. And then he decided, I'm going to do something. I'm going to turn on the light. And he approached these people at their own level with deep compassion, deep feeling, bringing them to a place of decision. And then he warned them of the consequence. And notice the response. And we'll close with this. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. And so Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Three responses. And there are still three responses, it seems, today. Number one, you get mocked. Oh, get out of here. I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. I've heard that line before. Forget it. Number two, some will embrace it and believe it. And number three, somebody will say, hey, uh, talk to me later. We'll hear you again on this matter. That's called procrastination. Now, a lot of people fall into that category, don't they? Not a lot, especially today. It's kind of like the non-committal era. This is the era of the 90s, no commitment. Kind of like maybe yes, maybe no, maybe someday. You know, few people want to look at you right in the face and say, I reject Jesus Christ the rest of my life, all right? But few will say, yes, as if God commands me to repent, I'll do it right now. Let's go. Let's pray. Most people will say, well, you know, that's very interesting. You've got to talk some other time about it. I'll put it on. Most people intend to get right with God, I have found. Most people never intend to be lost. They intend to be saved. They just never do anything about it. They put it off. It happens in the Christian realm. There's a lot of Christians that intend to get involved in kingdom work. Someday I'll be a strong enough Christian. Someday I'll make an impact and an influence. And someday, by golly, I'll see as God wants me to see, feel like He wants me to feel, and I'll turn on the light someday. No. Today's the day. For salvation for some, for service for others. 
especially if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ tonight. I'm not saying you believe, acknowledge in your mind that God somehow exists in this world, but if you don't know the joy of walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ, I urge you with all of my heart to make that decision tonight. I urge you. This may be the last time you hear the gospel. Oh, I've heard that before. Every preacher says that. Hey, my brother died on a motorcycle accident with the best intentions. He said much as these people said. He said, you know, I'll hear more about this later. His later never came. And ever since then, I thought, you know, any kind of spiritual decision, it's just not worth putting it off. It's not worth putting it off because you don't have a lease. on You don't know the lease on your life. You don't know when that contract runs out. God didn't necessarily guarantee you 70 years. But in Him we live and move and have our being. God has your breath in His hand tonight, but God wants your heart in His hand tonight. And He might have your breath, but if He doesn't have your heart, His heart is aching till you come home. You know, I would rather a person make a clear-cut line one way or the other rather than just the procrastinating response. Jesus said, I would that you were either cold or hot. But if you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. That's a tragic position. If you're a believer and you've been in the dugout, I've been in the dugout with you folks, I know what it's like. And really this is kind of a dugout session where the coach comes in and warms us up and gets us going and we hear the word and we get out again, but let's make sure that we get out again. I hope that you are missionaries rather than mission fields. But if you're a mission field, God wants you to turn you tonight into a missionary and bring you to Himself, give you a reason to live, purpose, save you, and then make you a missionary to go out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that in a world of corruption, a world of darkness, where it seems so hopeless that in the midst of that we are called as salt and as light to make a difference, to influence rather than to be influenced, to be different. Lord, I pray that we would have spiritual eyes that we might see past the veneer and the makeup and the tinsel of this world and see the spiritual condition and then be moved and feel and be provoked, angered, motivated, tearful. And then to do what Paul did, to turn on the light switch, to turn over the salt shaker and spread it out. And Father, as we approach people, may we approach them on their level, not being higher than they are, better than they are, holier than they are, but come on their level speaking their language, making the gospel of Christ attractive to them and letting the word of God have a full impact. Lord, help us in our personal evangelism to bring them to a place of decision and lead people to Christ. It's not difficult, Lord, because your Holy Spirit promised to be there with us. And Lord, I pray you'd motivate us to service. 
But Father, one of our biggest prayers tonight is that You'd bring people into Your kingdom who have not come in. That though You've overlooked years of ignorance, that You command tonight all men everywhere to repent. And tonight, if your heart is aching for Jesus and you want Him in your heart, right now say, Jesus, be my Lord and Savior. I confess I'm a sinner, and I want you to just wash away all of that darkness, all of that blackness, all of my past. Make me whiter than snow, whiter than wool. I want to be born again, Lord. Here's my life taken. And now I belong to you. In Jesus' name.